Today, we have a special Contravariance episode where we have two guests and we want to talk a bit about management. Specifically, we want to talk about what it is like to be a people manager or a engineering manager and um, if this could maybe be an interesting career choice for you um, if you're interested in what is all, the, all this is about. And for this, we have two guests on this episode. Um, which I will introduce one after the other. So first, let's introduce Kate. Kate, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Um, hi, I'm Kate, I'm an engineering director at DuckDuckGo, focused on the mobile team. And the second guest is Tamu. Tamu, do you briefly want to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Tamu. I'm engineering manager um, at uh, Mobimeo. And I switched uh, careers like three years ago. And before I was a developer role for like 20 years. One of the, the, the main questions I feel that many developers have when they work in the profession for some time, and I feel especially with Swift developers that maybe started a couple of years ago and have been working at, for some time now in the uh, profession as a senior developer, for example, they might wonder what to do next. There's a role such as a lead developer or in some companies like uh, Google or Facebook, there are levels where you can level up. Um, but sometimes you might also wonder, maybe you want to go into management and you want to maybe want to start leading a team. And if you have been thinking about that for some time, then um, maybe this is an interesting episode for you. So, um, Kate, when you tell us, how, how did it happen for you? Like, at what point did you switch the role from a developer to a, uh, to a, a leader? And, and how did that come about? Yeah, I guess I was thinking about it because I really, like, I always used to joke that I, like, never got to be part of an inclusive team until I ran one, you know, like, so, <laughs> like, I really wanted to be on a team where, you know, we were delivering well, where, you know, like, a broad spectrum of people could be successful, and, you know, I think the kind of, the truth in tech is that, like, so many managers are bad, like, very few people get to be part of a, of a really great team. Um Anyway, so I, I'd been an IC, I'd been a tech lead, um, and I kind of did my own thing for a while. And then uh, one of my friends was looking for a manager for one of his teams. And um, he like asked me if I knew anyone and I did not get the hint, you know? And so at some point I was like, oh, how's that going? And he's like, oh, not well, if you would move to Colombia. And I was like, of course I would move to Colombia. So then I like ended up in Colombia as a questionably legal migrant um running this engineering team and like learning how to be a manager and uh yeah and it was cool and then you know that startup kind of imploded and then Matt Mullenweg you know pinged me and he was like oh we could talk as you're looking for your next thing and I was like sure um and so we had you know we had like a long conversation and uh he was like yeah I thought you could run the mobile team and I remember I said to him like oh you know how many people is that and it was like more than 20 and I was like yeah, why would you think that's a good idea um but he did think it was a good idea and I like went through the process and then you know started running that team and like you know that was much bigger and I was like managing managers and you know doing kind of you know doing like a real like team transformation and yeah I really loved it so yeah I just I ended up I ended up working out but it, it wasn't necessarily a plan so it kind of happened by accident is almost what you're saying a 
little bit, but you know, like I kind of set myself up for the accident, you know, like I did a lot of work around culture. I um, spent, um, you know, I, I had been a tech lead. I'd like run complex projects um, and I had done, you know, I worked with a startup and I still work with them a little bit Glyforge, like help them build out their initial engineering team and build a good hiring process. So I had like learned a lot of the pieces that you need to be a manager and I'd done them and I had like written about them and, and given talks about them like very publicly. And so that kind of set me up for people to kind of see that I had this interest and this potential and kind of give me those opportunities. So you, so you invested a lot of time already into the topic, basically, and then uh, that also helped you along. So you were already curious about management before. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that I would say I was like curious about management. I was like very curious about like, how do you like build strong teams and deliver good software, right? Which at the core is like, like what a manager does. But like my curiosity was less about like titles or like power or whatever, and more about like the work that goes into it. Tamo, what about you? How was the transition for you? I remember, so maybe for the listener, Tamo and I were working together on one on a team, and then at some point, Tamo moved into a leadership position. So, how was it for you? Yeah, <clears throat> I was in the leadership position already before, but only as like, or not only uh, as a technical lead. So, uh, as a lead iOS developer, and then I got the offer to move over into an engineer manager position, and uh, I found that interesting because I did not think that I was like, I was uh, prepared for that because I did not uh, work into this uh, part before. On the other hand, uh, whenever you switch to something new, then you have to basically, yeah, you're new into it. And um, what I found really interesting about the change was that it's like a radical radical career change because uh, when you're in tech, tech for a long time, you, you see a lot of like things like repeating and there is not that much, uh, of course, there's a lot of new stuff, but uh, it feels uh, that it slows down a bit because you have seen so much already. But when you switch to a people management role, um, it's basically everything is different. Like uh, it's not tech, tech challenges, it's like people challenges. And it's so much like uh, more challenging and harder. And uh, that's what I really found interesting. And that was for, for me something to try it out because I said like, yes, um, I'd like to learn something new, and uh, but it seems to work out quite well for the company so far. So I'm happy that that I did the change. Did uh, the company support you in terms of training um, or training materials um, so that you could quickly level up uh, and become a better manager? Uh, what really helped me is uh, one of the colleagues who was already in an engine management position. And basically, he helped me a lot to get up to speed and uh, basically to to get the structures right and uh, yeah to to get to know all the um, aspects that there are, that there are. And the other things, of course, um, you know, I'm kind of like a lot. Of, I, I'm like I'm I'm a learner. I like to uh, learn things from books and so on. And so I basically got like everything that you could get uh, on on management. And tried, of course, to read a lot. Of course, I know that knowledge does not mean that you have the skills for it, but still, it's a good start. Kate, um, you said you initially went into a startup that imploded and then went on to Automatic. Um, I suppose in the startup position, there wasn't really any management training or leadership training, but but, but correct me if I'm wrong. But um, yeah, go on. 
Yeah, I mean, no, no, my manager was like really supportive. Um, you know, I had a professional development budget, so I could get some amount of training. I took um, the Be a Bullion People Developer course that the lead dev kind of still runs that my my friend Mary facilitates. Um, and, you know, like Tamo, I read a lot of books and, you know, I was really lucky to firstly have like a lot of really good friends in kind of management and leadership positions who, you know, I could turn to for advice and help. And I started like pretty early on, like working with a leadership coach who like really helped me, um, just really helped me like kind of like learn in a more accelerated way and really develop. Um, I think one of the things is in, in management is, is quite hard to do like deliberate practice, you know? So um, and you really like, you know, the problems become different and you're, you know, as actual human beings. So you really need to like learn as much as possible and recover as quickly as possible from like the mistakes that you inevitably make. And I found that for me, having a coach really, really helped support me with that. Is um, this something, Tamil, that you also tried or considered? Um um, uh, um, at our company, we have a leadership coaching program that also helps a lot, of course, but, uh, and also like development budget uh, is also something that I really like, especially like um, we have a dedicated budget. So we get a substantial amount per year that we can just uh, use on uh, personal development. And of course, in my role, that means I could spend that on uh, a leadership coach as well. But so far, I only did uh, coachings in, inside uh, the whole uh, leadership group. And nothing like on, like one on one. When I sometimes talk to people that are interested in a leadership role, um, what I hear is that they are afraid that um, they don't have enough time to do at least a little bit of engineering anymore. Some people really enjoy doing engineering and they, they like doing that and they are afraid that it's just sitting in meetings and um, talking to people and no engineering. Is um, this something? What's your opinion on that? What's your view on that, uh, Kate? Yeah, I mean, in my first management jo job, I still managed to do a little bit of coding. Um, I think, you know, the thing is like, yeah, personally, I love coding. The last time I wrote meaningful code, though, was on vacation. You know, I wrote a script recently and like our CEO was <laughs> told me that I had to check it into version control. I'm <laughs> like, oh, this is this is a low point in my life and career. But um <laughs> You know, like, just because it's what I personally want doesn't mean it's the best thing for the team. And so, like, firstly, that, like, every week I come in and kind of think about, like, you know, what do we need to be doing with the team, like, over the long term? What are the things that I could do, you know, in the next, like, week, month, whatever, that would, like, meaningfully make the team operate better over the longer term? The answer to that is literally never write some code you know and that's very sad for me personally right and if I really need it I need to find a way to get it but like I can't really justify it as being kind of an impactful part of my job the other thing is like when you're a manager writing code and you know I remember when I was a tech lead my manager who was terrible um he wrote some code and he uh he took a piece of the app that was on the critical path he said he was going to write it He didn't write it in a timely way. When he did, it sucks. I had to rewrite it and it was incredibly complicated. So in the process of getting this kind of core piece of the app, like working really well, I had to rewrite it multiple times, you know? And like, it would have been much better 
better if he had just admitted that he couldn't do it <laughs> and had done it from the get-go. But he didn't, you know, he had this need, you know, like whatever his need was there, it didn't end up kind of serving the team or serving our delivery well, right? And so, you know, I never want to be that person. So if I was to write code, I would recognize it <laughs> as like a need in myself. And I think, you know, it's at work is not always the best place to to kind of fulfill that need. Yeah, I think I fully agree. I also fell a bit into this rabbit hole. Um, initially, when I moved into the team lead position, I also tried to do as much development as my time would allow while also managing the team. But at some point, the the management took over and it I felt torn between sides because I still wanted to fulfill my obligations to the team in terms of... Um, meaningful contributions but at the same time i couldn't really find the time to do meaningful contributions i could do contributions but not meaningful ones and um, that felt very difficult and i at some point i just had to realize that um, my first team lead was right when he told me that doing these things at the same time is just very difficult and i still try to do a little bit of programming on for, for the team but it's much less than i initially um, set out to do it simply because the complexities of all the things that are related to management, to things and meetings, and, and making sure the team has the correct information on the and so on that takes over. Tamo, how is it for you? It's uh, it's the same. I mean, uh, you have if you switch into an engineering management position, you have to be prepared to not write code at all. And if you can't accept that, then it's not the right thing for you. Mm. And uh, I mean, of course, uh, for me, it's uh, I, I still I, I love to code and I still dabble a bit. And when I'm asked, I help out. One thing I also do is like I try to do pull requests uh, reviews and uh, merge request reviews. So um, to try to at least uh, like um, be a bit there and be a bit of help because uh, most developers don't like to do code reviews for some reason. I like it a lot. And um, But other than that, I only contributed smaller things, and it's it's not it's not a like big part of my job anymore. Mm. I think when you do pull request reviews, um, you also get a good feel for the team, right, or for the development of what's happening. Yes, it helps a bit to to get like to know what what is what is committed and um, how the code quality is, um, also how people react to feedback. Uh, also, you learn a lot about giving feedback because this is also something that's very important to write uh, uh, code reviews that are helpful and not, yeah, it's sometimes really hard to yeah, find the I right term. Sorry, Kate. No, I was going to say, like, I, I think the other thing that I realized kind of over time is that I can be the best manager if I understand things at a system level and often trying to understand things at a detail level just is a distraction from that. So I spend more time on architecture review than PR review now. And I try to understand what we work on in a kind of at a system level and just like let go of all the details because actually the system level is what really affects our roadmap. It's what kind of leads to the gotchas and it's what helps me kind of, you know, be informed and technically helpful um, without, you know, to this, the extent that I need to, to fulfill my job without kind of undermining my team, derailing myself um, and, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I think that kind of relates to one of the things that for me made it makes it really hard to, to write code, even if I could find the time and justify it, which is 
contact switching, but also contact switching from like working at a higher level to working at a detail level. Like I find that absolutely brutal. And so focusing on the system thing makes the contact switching between the technical, non-technical less brutal because it's at a similar level of abstraction. I feel that um, oftentimes when people switch into this role, they usually also start with a small team. And then it's also easier, I guess, to um, do a little bit of programming to a little bit of like kind of have a 50-50 between um, engineering and um, people management and then see if the people management part wins over. Um, because it's also easy to try this out. And if you then realize, okay, I, I really enjoy the engineering more, then maybe it's just in the right role, but it might still have been worthwhile to to try it out, right? Yeah, I think that's true, but it also depends if you're making that move internally, right? So if you've been a developer on the team and then you become the lead of that team, like you already understand how everything works and you know how to contribute to it. When you move into like a management role and you change companies and you come in as a manager, you know, you have all the work to do to get up to speed on like the people and the processes and the projects and all the stuff that's your actual job. And it's very, very hard to like, take on top of that, you know, the job of onboarding as an engineer, which is is a huge amount of work, even for engineers doing that full time. Yeah, that's a valid point, a very valid point. I was thinking in terms of staying on the team or in the same company. Um, what was a particularly hard thing for you when you transitioned into the management role, Tom? I mean, the first, uh, the obvious one was, uh, I always had this dream that I can still like, uh, program a bit on the side and I had to let that one go <laughs> um, because there were so many other things uh, to do that were um, that were more important. Uh, one uh, that I underestimated was hiring because uh, hiring costs uh, uh, co costs you a lot of time and um, yeah that uh, that were basically the two surprises to me that um, that I could not uh, continue like a uh, program like I, I had this uh, idea of like a, at least a bit programming and so on but and also um, I was hired uh, as an um, engineer manager for mobile so for iOS and Android as well and my background is iOS and I basically know all, not much about Android and so my um, my idea was like yeah I could look a bit into Android and learn like the differences between I don't know activities and fragments and stuff like that and uh, I never got around to it. There were so many other things to do. And in hindsight, of course, uh, it was uh, maybe a bit stupid of me to think that I would have the time. On the other hand, it's also quite good because uh, when you switch to something new and then you should invest all the time you have into the new to learn it. And in engineering, I, I already have quite a background and I know a lot and uh, management was, that's the new stuff. That's the stuff where I, I can grow a lot because I just have not the background and the um, experience there. Mm -hmm. And so rather like then investing into something where I'm already, yeah, uh, pretty experienced, why, why not do, do more in the new stuff? Mm -hmm. Hey, what about you? Um, yeah, I mean, it was hard to, to give up programming. I think the thing that I found most surprising though was like, how emotionally draining it can be to be a manager at times. Um, like my first management job was was pretty extreme. So as the startup exploded, there was a point where I had to like fire half my team, which was 
you know, really one of the worst days of my professional career. Um, and, it, you know, obviously that was that was horrible. And I think one of the things I learned in that was that my manager at the time, like, you know, we were both like very stressed, very unhappy about this. And we normally got on very well, but we had a call where we like actually yelled at each other. <laughs> I'm not like a yeller, <laughs> you know, um, him maybe a little bit more so, but like that wasn't our relationship. Like we were like yelling at each other and we like had this like big fight about it. And then, you know, when we actually got to what we needed to talk about, we found ourselves in complete agreement, you know, with what, what needed to be. And I think we could have kind of taken a little bit better care of each other's emotions there so that was really that was really hard that whole situation although you know we were we were made good even after that whole experience um and then I think the other thing you know there's there's been unexpectedly hard is like I've often been in these situations where I'm trying to like fix failing teams which is incredibly emotionally draining and just like very very like very difficult um to to kind of drive that change and, and lift things up and, you know, the thing that every time I encounter it, it disappoints me again, even though I know it is like how, you know, one toxic individual can have a disproportionate effect on the health of a team. How do you communicate difficult changes to the team? Let's say you have a um, toxic person and there's something you, you need to do. Or how do you handle this, this toxic person? Not in too much detail, but just what is your process, your thought and your plan, your management process to 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 work with changes that need to be communicated that not the whole team will like? Yeah, I mean, I think if you have somebody on the team who's really toxic who can't get with the program, then you have to get rid of them. You know, like you just don't don't want to be dealing, don't want to be dealing with that. And like ultimately people's behavior is their choice, right? So you can show them how the, the impact their behavior has, but like, you know, what they do with that is up to them. Um, I think for, for me, the difference there is like, I have endless patience for people who want to complain because they want things to be better, you know, who like have an opinion, they find things wrong, but they'll like help you improve things. And now I have, I have very little to no patience to people who complain because they want to feel superior, right? And so that for me is how I like thread the needle on like, who's who's difficult but worthwhile and who's difficult and needs to change. Um, when it comes to like, like there's a lot of research on change management and everything but like essentially what it comes down to is like being a decent human being and have and having empathy um and so communicating stuff in a way that gives people time to process it that gives people space for their emotions um but ultimately like as a leader as a manager like you're responsible for the state of the team for the delivery of the team and like if you have to make a hard decision and push it through then you need to do that and so understanding you know <laughs> like understanding that people will have their emotions and you give them space for it but like sometimes you just have to make a decision that people are not necessarily going to be delighted with and like you know if it pays off hopefully they'll they'll kind of see why you made it later this feels and sounds like something that is incredibly hard because these are persons you know and then this is very emotional and so on and then it's a it's a communication it's a message that they will probably obviously not like and um, it's having a hard conversation it's a bit like splitting up when you're in a relationship right and so this uh, suddenly splitting up is part of your job how do you how do you cope with that and this is a question to both of you uh, I, unfortunately that i don't have the um I didn't have the uh, experience with the toxic people so far. 
Um, one thing that helps uh, if you have some difficult decision that you need to uh, communicate is like, I mean, kind of obvious, but it's preparation. Be prepared, like uh, know who to, um, who is like responsible, like this Raki, responsible, accountable, who is, uh, who needs to be consulted before and who is just informed, like who gets only gets an FYI. And um, also uh, prepare to show like, hey, these are the available options. These are the options that we considered and they, this is why we are going this way and not one of the others. Because otherwise, if you do it, just say like, this is the decision and go with it, then uh, people tend to ask, why not this way, why not that way? And if you can show that you put really thought into it and this is not an easy decision and that there are other options that are in total even worse that you have considered, then uh, it's it's easier to get acceptance for what you what you show. That is basically the best of all the of all the ugly ways to do something. Yeah, I think that's right. I think a lot about the like levels of communication in a team. So for me, there's your like mission level, like you know, what on the on a grand what in the grand scheme of things are we doing? Then the strategy level of like how are we doing it? Um, why are we doing it this way? And then a tactical level. So like day to day, what does this mean for us? You know, like what are our um, what are our tactics? And then like execution, which is actually doing the work, right? And so often, you know, when communication is lacking in some way, they've not covered all those levels. So people understand the strategy, but they don't understand what it means for their day to day, or they feel the day to day impact very strongly, but they don't really understand how there's a strategic value there, right? And so people need to understand the context in which change takes place and how it fits into them, and um, and then I think the other thing that people need to understand is data. So if, for example, you have a process that's just not scalable or like something that's not working, like the numbers don't lie. And so bringing in the data and kind of using that to explain the situation, the strategy, how things are moving or not moving can be really, really important and really powerful. Um, and engineers tend to respond to data. Kate, you said earlier that um, something that you've, you were striving for is being a manager that um, leads to good software. And this was something that I found uh, striking because obviously that's what we all want, right? We want to have good software in the end. But can you share some patterns, some mechanism that you would say um, emancipate a team to create great software? Yeah, I think that's really interesting. Um, I mean, I'm not like, I'm not somebody who generally like loves people you know I like I'm like there's the people I care about it's not a huge circle there's the people I'm paid to care about and then there's basically everybody else right so I'm not like tending to people's emotions just because I'm inherently interested in it um and you know for me it's all in service of like you know is the team like delivering well right I also think that to, to pretend that that doesn't matter is just like a lie you know, because there's there's plenty of ways that people can like tend to team health and whatever. But if that team doesn't end up in delivering, then it just generates a level of anxiety on the team that there's no amount of like emotional stuff or treats will will kind of address. So, and and you know, like work is work, right? Like we're hired to do a job. That job is to deliver software. The job, the role of a manager is to make sure that the team is delivering. Um, I do think that healthy teams and diverse teams and inclusive teams deliver better. Like there's plenty of data to support that. And one of the big things that, you know, 
impacts both team health and the software that gets delivered is that the way the team communicates. Um, teams that are dysfunctional tend to fight <laughs> or communicate like just insufficient, you know, and um, high performing teams have a much higher fidelity of communication. They can give each other feedback. They can ask hard questions. They can really interrogate and like argue over the work without making it personal. And so if you can create an environment where people feel like they can show up, express their opinions, um, kind of argue things out to get to a better solution, then that team will then deliver better. It will have better psychological safety. Everyone will feel better about going to work in that team. Wasn't there also a Google study that figured out that um, the teams that were uh, the that had the most output, that were the most best performing teams, were the ones where the people would also feel the safest? I think that was a study that figured that out a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, having worked at Google, I was always amazed that there were enough teams with psychological safety for that to have shown up in the data. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, they definitely showed that. And, you know, this is why, this is part of why diverse teams perform better is because diverse teams have a broader variety of opinions. So when the teams are diverse and psychologically safe, you've got a better spectrum of opinions that leads to better decisions. And homogeneous teams tend to just like devolve to the lowest common denominator. But diverse teams do have a higher level of conflict because of these differing opinions. And that's why it's so important to be able to create a space where you can have productive conflict. Mm -hmm. Amu, you said you had um, did read all the literature you could find on uh, management. So what were some patterns that you tried out that worked well to increase the um, performance and the quality of the, your team's output? Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> have to think about that. Um, I mean, uh, one thing I actually did not get from the books is um, what I really like is at the beginning, uh, when I start, uh, whenever I start somewhere, I ask about the code, uh, code style, code style guide. And if there is none, I ask whether we can agree on one. And uh, I see that as a little bit of a litmus test for a team, because on one hand, you want to see that people have disagreement, that it's not too uh, aligned. And uh, You want to see how they how they how they work with that disagreement and how they come to a solution, and uh, you can see a lot of things by just because if you cannot agree on something something as simple as uh, where to put a brace, how should you agree on something important like in design or in architecture? I mean, uh, mm -hmm. and this is something I, I think is really helpful to 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 figure out like how people behave and how the team is actually work currently working together or not working together. Because mm -hmm. if people can't can't agree, then you learn it. If people like are too fast to agree, you learn it by that. And um, regarding the, um, the- Sorry, go on. Sorry? Uh, no, go on, go on. And regarding the books, one of the things that I really underestimated is the power of one-on-ones. Uh, at the beginning, I thought like they were not that important, and uh, because I also did not have them as frequently when I uh, where I was uh, working before. But then, when I started, I really uh, learned how important they are to get actually to to um, um, know the people on on the professional both at the, uh, both at the professional and the personal level. And I would that's one thing that I, I could not go without. I think in the future, like with one ones. I really want to talk 
about one-on-ones. But before we do that, I have one question to to both of you. That is um, the litmus test you mentioned earlier about the the coding change or anything else that where the team can't even agree on something very simple, be it um, whether the window is open or closed. How do you form a team that is in this situation? Like, how do you mold it into something that works together? What 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 are some options to do that? Katie, you want to go first? <laughs> I was going to let you go first. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, one of the things is uh, to show that the decision is not that important because most of the decisions are reversible. And uh, if you go the wrong path, the question is how much time do you lose by that? Most of the time, it's not like it's not the end of the world. For instance, like uh, you have a third party dependency library. Do you put an abstraction layer in front of it so that you can easily swap it out? Or do you lose it, use it directly and couple your code to it? Both are perfectly valid solutions. Both work fine. And depending on uh, what happens in the future, um, both of them can bite you. So, um, and if uh, people cannot come to agreement, go for, ask them what they would like. Uh, do you want to uh, go for a majority vote? Do you, would you like to delegate the decision to me so that I do it? And uh, one thing that actually can also work is, would you like to flip a coin? Because uh, at the end of the day, if we have so many people in the room and you're actually talking about something that does not really matter that much, uh, you're wa wasting a lot of time uh, by talking about it. So why not just uh, let fate decide? It's also something that's perfectly valid. I actually used it in one, uh, one occurrence. That's amazing. I've never never used a coin toss, but maybe I will now. Um, I think, you know, if a team is not communicating well, then the, my first question is just why, you know? And often you end up answering the why on first an individual and then a system level. So do people not feel comfortable expressing their opinion? Um, do some people kind of uh, overtake the discussion and other people don't feel like they can... They can say things like, "What's what kind of dynamics are going on? And then I think that often comes to systems because, you know, like one thing that I've repeatedly found is that teams that don't function well don't onboard well. And so people who haven't been onboarded, they don't feel a sense of belonging. So they don't feel like they can express their opinions and they don't feel a sense of accomplishment. So they don't feel like they have the track record in the team that makes them entitled to express an opinion. And so then, you know, I want to fix that in a systematic way and like, you know, onboard people better. Um, I think Generally, I think of team communication as a bit of a, a hierarchy, right? And I'm at the at the top of it is conflict, and at the bottom of it is logistics. And so, if a team's talking only about logistics, then that's not a great sign. And if a team is just only having conflict and not filling in the rest of it, then that's also not a great sign. And so, depending on where things are at, I'll like work down the pyramid or up the pyramid, right? So if I have a team that's communicating primarily through conflict, then I'm going to try and start getting critical feedback, you know, and getting then positive feedback coming in and, and going in that way. It's much more common in my experience to find a team that's just like not really communicating at all. And then, you know, communicating only in logistics, and then we can start building stuff up. And so this is where I actually find chit chat is really important and really impactful you know like one of the best changes we've made on my current team is that we bought in a water cooler channel and just started you know talking nonsense to each other more publicly and involving everybody in it um 
and then kind of working up until you know we kind of reach a point where we can have like productive conflict something that we did as um covid happened was that uh, we had a five like every morning at nine we now have a, it's called a social call where we talk of, about everything but work mostly and also one day a week we try to have a very curious question like if you would have to eat the same food for the rest of your life what kind of food would it be and it's very interesting what you learn about people from these weird kind of questions or what's the weirdest thing you have in your home right now show it into the camera if possible and explain the story behind it and um and that's also how people in my experience open up because you you share something private and that's how you open up and then <laughs> now the listener can't see it tamo is showing his weirdest item um so that that is how you how you allow people to go out of, beyond their their professional barrier and open up a bit which is really helpful um tell me you early earlier mentioned one-on-ones and i totally agree that this is a really valuable tool um how do you and once again the question to both of you um how do you structure your one-on-ones and do you do you plan them um or do you just go about them and how do you roughly do that and do they have, do you have them weekly what is your plan Maybe uh, Kate. No, Tom. Are you sure? Okay. Um, one of the things is like, of course, the first thing is like the frequency, which frequency you want to go for. And um, I really like to go for weekly one-on-ones because then if you, if you have to skip one because of uh, vacation, because of sickness or something, then it's not that if, if you would be on a two-week cycle, you would basically then have uh, only one month. So you would have to reschedule it. And so um, I think the, it's better to go for more frequent. Regarding um, um, preparation, um, I sometimes uh, jot down some uh, topics that I want to talk about and or some topics I have to talk about. Um, other than that, it's mostly I start with, with the question how it's going. And um, people then basically tell about what they are currently working on and uh, what their current issues are. And whenever I have something where I can... Um, um, yeah, unblock something or help out or, for instance, I don't know, um, find someone who can answer something best, uh, I jot it down and then uh, follow follow up afterwards so that I can ideally uh, solve this uh, before the next one-on-one. Yeah, I also do weekly one-on-ones. I've also done bi-weekly, which I think with ICs can be fine, but when I was doing that, I was also like checking in with people in a text-based way every day, and we would escalate to a call if necessary. Um, currently, I do weekly one-on-ones, but I try to check in with people via text at least once or twice other times in the week, and I generally make sure that they know that I'm like present. So I, I t- totally believe, and and the way that we operate at Dr. Go is. Um, this idea that you don't have a manager, you have a career advisor. And so the one-on-one time is definitely the person's time. And I'm not, I don't feel a big need for a structure myself. And so (laughs) I tell them they can do whatever they want and I'll just adhere to whatever structure they want to have. We all have like a shared task, but it's up to the person what they want to put in it. Um, I definitely like Tamo start with an emotional check-in. Um, I don't really want, I definitely don't want status updates in the one-on-one, but I do want to know how people feel about their work and how they feel it's going and if there's anything they're worried about. So I spend a lot of time on that. And then, you know, I spend time kind of 
coaching them and like trying to help them be their best selves professionally, whether that is about the work they're doing immediately or, you know, in this career advisor model, I have much more freedom to make that about, you know, their wider career goals. Um, And that's been super, super interesting in this model. Is there anything else regarding um, management, uh, leadership, um, moving from an engineering pos uh, position into this that you would like to talk about that you would like to mention? You know, there's one thing and like everybody who moves into management has this like terror of feedback, you know, like, oh, I have to give people feedback. And actually, they don't mean feedback. They mean I have to give people critical feedback. And I think, you know, like one of the things that, you know, when I manage managers and I really try to do is like you know feedback does not mean critical feedback like feedback is just how you're showing up reflected back to you and to normalize giving feedback in every one-on-one -on -one, I try to give my direct some kind of feedback and often it's positive feedback which is much more helpful it creates a better relationship for you it helps people understand what to focus on and the thing about positive feedback is that It's most helpful when it's given with the same kind of care and specificity that we would give critical feedback. And so it's not enough to say to somebody, oh, you did a great job. It's, you know, kind of why and then what particular. So on this project, I really noticed that you um, gave really good updates or you handled the technical complexity really well and made sure that you kept the scope tight and delivered it. And I find that is really, really helpful because it normalizes feedback between me and my directs. And ideally, it makes any kind of constructive feedback that I want to give them much less threatening. You know, so if I see something that somebody can do better, I'll ping them right away and be like, do you have five minutes? Hop on a Zoom with them and say, hey, you know, I understand what you're doing here, but you didn't answer my question. Or just tell them directly what I want to see. And because I'm always telling them what I value about them, when I do tell them what I think they can do better, it's not threatening to them. And normally I just see them address it immediately. That's really valuable feedback. That makes so much sense. Tamu, is there something you want to add? I can't top that. I think that's, uh, that's a posit positivity that um, I think it's also like there is a list of, I think, 12 uh, things that people need to feel like uh, Valid at work, and one of them is that they um, got some positive feedback from someone in the last seven days. And uh, of course, not all the positive feedback can come from you, but uh, in software engineering, I think we are trained to uh, look for errors, trained to look for the stuff that is not right. And so uh, we tend to focus on that, and uh, maybe we need just to focus more on the things that are good and that uh, most of the things are like not the end of the world, everything. Everything is fine, and no, of course, not everything, but uh, that yeah, a bit more positivity, I think, can help a lot. I also feel like um, oftentimes we we tend to take things for granted, which we shouldn't. Um, somebody might might do a good job, and we think, "Well, oh, he's doing a good job," but uh, it's probably it's probably useful to also point it out, as you said, Kate, and give really valuable feedback, and not just say "good boy," but go beyond that. And I really like that. This was a really nice episode. Thank you, Kate, for joining. Thank you, Tamo, for joining. Um, thanks for having me. Same here. Thanks to the listener for listening uh, to the whole episode because you've now reached the end. So obviously, listened until the end. And let's let's see when we see each other again on this uh, on this podcast.
I do not know much about you, but I know that you're a fan of raccoons, right? Oh, I love raccoons. Yeah, it's great. That's one of the, uh, I follow you on Twitter and most uh, most of the tw things <laughs> in the timeline, I actually like retweets of this, like uh, raccoon an hour. <laughs> oh my God, I love those raccoons. I have like a lot of good raccoons on Instagram, but Instagram doesn't share well on Twitter. But one of them died recently. I was really sad. Oh no. So where, where do you yeah. have raccoons? On Instagram. Like there's so many raccoons on Instagram. I don't want to get Instagram and then finally I found all these raccoons and just started like I think I was jet lagged and looked at my phone in the middle of the night and found so many raccoons and then went back to sleep and then woke up in the morning and all of a sudden I like loved Instagram. <laughs> so the raccoon Instagram. <laughs> yeah, there's a whole Russian raccoon subculture. It's fascinating. Is it people yeah. with raccoons or just people recording raccoons in a variety of things? Yeah, so in Russia, like there are people with raccoons as pets. And so that's that's the subculture. And then uh, in Korea, there's like a number of raccoon cafes. Is it allowed in Ireland to have a raccoon as a pet? I mean, whether or not it's allowed in Ireland, I don't think Boss wants to take care of a raccoon. So I think that's kind of a non-starter. Okay. <laughs> Maybe it's I a well-behaved raccoon. Hmm? I also think that uh, they, uh, I heard that they uh, are very curious and because of that, they opened everything and basically uh, throw everything out of uh, cupboards and stuff. <laughs> so I they think also they are these, not... Yeah. They have these small fingers, right? Which are so much like a human hand and they can do all the things with tools and so on if they want. Yeah, they're very clever. Actually, one of my friends and I, we have a deal that if I die, she has to get a pet raccoon and name it Kate. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I killed the conversation. Right. That's so sad. I mean, and you can't even you can't even meet the raccoon then because you're dead. That's that's so sad. I'm like. I'm working. I'm working on getting one more. So I'm still alive, but I can't take it as a deal. But it, it's a very good insurance that she will take deep care that you are not dying. No, she would love to get a uh, raccoon. No, that's not a, like, that is not yeah, a good deal. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a good deal. <laughs> no, she would never kill me. She's one of my like closest friends. But maybe she will get a raccoon whilst I'm still alive, and I will go to Uruguay to visit it. <laughs> 